A reading from Isaiah. The Lord God has given me the tongue of a teacher that I may know how to sustain the weary with the word. Morning by morning he wakens, wakens to my ear, wakens my ear to listen as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I did not turn backward. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I did not hide my face from insult and spitting. The Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who are my adversaries? Let them confront me. It is the Lord God who helps me. Who will declare me guilty? The word of the Lord. A reading from Philippians. Let the same mind be in you that was in Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. Acknowledge, we humbly beseech you, a lamb of your own fold, a sheep of your own flock, a sinner of your own redeeming. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome to the beginning of Holy Week. And prayer is in advance that this will be an extraordinary week for you as you walk day by day the passion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, the story, the passion... We'll read at the end of our service and we'll proceed silently into the week having heard it. But for now, we're treated with this letter from Paul to the Philippians. And this excerpt from the letter is what almost every New Testament scholar will tell you is the oldest part of our New Testament. It's a hymn. It's a song of praise written within 10 years of the resurrection itself. So you see, much older than any part of our New Testament. There are, from time to time, uh, sermons in which you hear magic words in Greek or Hebrew. Uh, no doubt you've been before and heard the difference between, say, agape love and other kinds of love. If you've been going to church a while, I, I trust this is true. Philippians has for us one of those magic words. The word is kenosis, which means self-emptying. To put it in context, Christ emptied himself and took on the nature of a servant. Two thoughts. One is an image from the Kabbalah. This is mystical Judaism, a sect of which Madonna fancies herself to be a part of. Let me tell you, she's not. Um, in Kabbalist, Kabbalistic tradition, when God got ready to create the world, God made space within God's self 
for the world to exist independently. God backed up so that we could be. It's an image that happens, it's akin to, I think, pregnancy in which a woman makes space in her body for a new life. She empties herself of this space so that there can be newness. A beautiful image, I think, and one we're invited to grow into as we make space for others. The other image of self-emptying, and sorry if you were here last year because I said the same thing I'm going to say again, and I'll probably say the same thing next year, is a reflection on nature. When I, uh, about 10 years ago, I had the opportunity to spend oh, a summer and a half in Alaska, and I lived with a man who introduced me to the spirituality of salmon fishing at 3.30 in the morning with the midnight sun behind me, so bright and waters so clean that I could see the fish, I could see my lure, and I could see it hit the fish in the mouth. Now, one of the most spiritual moments in my life is sitting there for the successive 45 minutes trying to reel that fish in at 3.30 in the morning. The fish themselves, though, have a pretty interesting life story and one, I think, that offers to guide us appropriately into Holy Week. So maybe you know this already, but fish, salmon particularly, are relatively unique. They're born in these tiny ponds or lakes in Alaska, essentially are glacially fed, and the mother salmon lays 3,000 eggs. 3,000. After a couple of months, the eggs have moved around and they're sort of like little eyes with a tail on them, just watching. They're called alevin. Within a year, there's about 300 of them left. They're the size of your pinky and they're called fingerlings. Year after that, they're the size of your hand and they're called smolt. When one day the urge overtakes them to leave the pool they were grown in and swim to the ocean. So they join glacially fed brooks and streams and creeks that merge into mighty rivers and they go all the way to the ocean, the Pacific, mind you. And as soon as they get to the bay, they have this cognitive dissonance. (laughs) They were breathing fresh water and of course the bay is salty. So now they go literally belly up, gasping for breath, trying to convert the way that they breathe and the way that they can survive. 125 make it. They spend a couple of years there in the bay, growing acclimated, growing big, growing strong, until they're about the size of your middle finger to your elbow. That's called a cubit, biblically, a cubit. And from there, they go out of the ocean and join these huge circles that are called gyres. The gyres, interestingly enough, are things that generate wind in the rest of the world. So these salmon will swim in these gyres for two or three years, some 25,000 miles. And then one day, the same instinct that made them smolts will ring in them again. And they come out of the gyre and return to the very bay that they once floundered in, this time to swim upstream against the currents that carried them. Twenty-six of them will make it back to the bay. This time they're going to go from salt water to fresh water, and it's a little more that they can bear. They won't make the transition. So salmon 
kind of secrete a slime that protects them from the fresh water that is interestingly enough now poisonous to them. You've seen this, no doubt, on the BBC or um, on Animal Planet or something. These beautiful, huge fish, which can be up to 120 pounds in weight, literally swimming up waterfalls. If you haven't, I suggest you look at this. It's pretty amazing to see a fish hop up a waterfall. Along the way, and of course, they're going back to exactly the same pool that they were born in. Scientists haven't quite figured this out, by the way, because some of these pools differ in mineral content by one part per billion. So how it is that the fish know to go exactly where they were spawned from, still a little mysterious. There they head, and along the way, there are anglers trying to catch them in hooks. You can see in these same BBC videos that there are also bears literally sitting on top of those waterfalls snatching them as they come up. Some of them, frankly, don't have the energy. They wear out and they wash back. Of the 3,000 eggs that were laid, two fish make it back to the pond in which they were spawned and the life cycle begins again. The curious thing about the fish is that when they make that journey upstream, when they swim against the currents that once carried them, they undergo a remarkable physical transformation. So a streamlined silver fish undergoes three significant changes. Number one, it changes its color. So if you were to cut the salmon and look at the fillet before it swims, the inside would not be pink or orange, it would be blood red. As they swim against the currents, the fat in the fish goes out and the color goes with it. So the fish changes from silver to blood red like a fire engine and its head turns from silver to green. The fish grows as it swims against the waters that carried it. A remarkable hump on its back. And its aerodynamic, or I suppose better said hydrodynamic jaws elongate and hook and they grow an inch and a half long yellow teeth that look like bougainvillea thorns from their jaws. Pretty fascinating. Friends, I suggest to you it is the gospel in nature. After all, Jesus himself was born in a really small pond. Nazareth was a village with no more than 150 people. Jesus, like the fish and like all children, was just a little eye, swimming around, watching how he was to behave. And of course, as with everybody else, he was carried downstream by the waters of his culture. He went to synagogue, he had a bar mitzvah, he went to the temple, he was circumcised on the eighth day, he followed his father's profession. And then one day, while swimming out in the oceans of Judaism in the Levant region, something clicked when he heard John the Baptist say, Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And Jesus swam in a different direction against some of the same currents that had raised him and carried him, such that when entering Jerusalem on Monday, he goes to the temple and flips the tables over and says, it is written, my father's house will be a place of worship and you've made it a den of robbers. 
When a donkey falls into the well, it is written, you shall leave it to die. Pull it out. Choose life. All week long, you'll see the scribes and the Pharisees, the Herodians and the Romans, trying to hook Jesus. Trying to trick him in something he says so that they'll have an excuse to execute him. All week long, he will swim against currents of oppression. And of course, we know what happens Friday. He makes it back to that same small pool, figuratively, and there's a group, a small group made up of the disciples and some women that take Jesus seriously and swim against some of the same currents of oppression and domination that Jesus himself swam against. Of course, the remarkable thing is that the fish tell us what is natural. It is natural when we swim against currents of oppression and domination, when we try to swim into God's imagination for us to get exhausted, for us to grow self-righteous humps on our back, for us to change our colors, for us to grow snaggly, sharp, biting teeth. Maybe I should say, it's natural for me. I do know what it's like for you, but if you ever found yourself thinking, for the love of Jesus, I am trying to help you, why are you making it so hard? Then you know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe you've raised children. <laughs> and here, I think, is the epitome of self-emptying and of the gospel itself, is that Jesus swims the weak without changing his colors. Jesus swims the weak without growing a self-righteous, indignant hump. Jesus swims the weak without growing hook-shaped jaws with teeth that are barbs. Jesus ends the week Friday on a cross saying, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're really doing. That's a holy swim. It's set apart. It's extraordinary because it's not natural. Every day this week, Jesus will empty himself. And friends, isn't that our call? To empty ourselves of bitterness, self-righteousness, indignation, exhaustion that leads to violence, of changing our colors, of growing a hump, of getting large hooked jaws and sharp teeth while we try to swim into God's imagination. I put before us that if we could swim like our Lord and Savior, this would indeed be a holy, extraordinary week. And I invite you to join me as we swim upstream. Please join me as we pray our faith in the words of the nice.